is also my pleasure at this time to introduce our next speaker. And Dr. Heather Brandling-Bennett is an attending at the Division of Dermatology in Seattle Children's Hospital, an assistant professor in the Department of Pediatrics in the University of Washington School of Medicine. She attended Harvard Medical School, completed a residency in dermatology at Harvard Medical School, and then did a fellowship in pediatric dermatology at Columbia University. Her clinical and research interests include rheumatologic dermatologic diseases, vascular anomalies, and ichthyoses, and medical education. Please welcome Dr. Brandling Bennett. All right. Thanks, you guys. Thanks for inviting me to speak today. I was actually asked to talk to you guys specifically about isotretinone and inflammatory bowel disease, but I thought 45 minutes of inflammatory bowel disease and we'd all be asleep. So I decided to talk about some of the other contentious issues with isotretinoin as well. I don't have any disclosures to make. Um, so isotretinoin, actually first discovered in the 1950s, but didn't become FDA approved until the 1980s. And it's approved for the treatment of severe nodulocystic acne, although I think many of us use it for more moderate acne that doesn't respond to other treatments. It's often uh, weight-based dosing. Some people use sort of a guideline of getting to a total dose of 120 to 150 milligrams per kilogram over a, maybe a five to six or sometimes longer course of treatment. It's been marketed under a number of brand names, probably the most famous being Accutane, which we probably all know has pulled off the market, in the US at least, um, in 2009 amidst a lot of speculation that had to do with the lawsuits that we're gonna talk about over the next uh, 45 minutes or so. Um, estimated that about 20 million people have taken isotretinoin over the past 30 years. And hopefully many of you have seen for yourselves how effective um, isotretinoin can be. I'm not so good about taking before and after photos. This is actually something our uh, PA, uh, who's in the audience, Morgan Meyer, um, is great about doing. And it's actually not a bad idea because I found that when I started doing it, my patients love seeing the before pictures. They like want to see how much of an improvement they've had over the course of treatment. This is my favorite uh, photo set that Morgan shared with me. I think this could be a proactive commercial, the before and after. This kid just looks much happier and clearly much better. Um, but it's very effective for the vast majority of patients who take it for acne and can often be a cure, although somewhere around 20 to 30% of patients may do a second course of treatment down the road. Um, you're gonna have another talk all about acne, so I'm not gonna go into the details of treatment of acne in particular. Um, we all know that isotretinoin has potential side effects, and some can really are very common and you can expect your patients to have. So I tell all my patients they're going to get mucocutaneous side effects. It's, they're gonna have a dry lips, they're gonna have dry skin. They might get nosebleeds from dry nose. Um, they may have dry eyes, they may not be able to tolerate their contacts. Um, musculoskeletal complaints, I've definitely had some patients complain of myalgias, especially back pain it seems, that you know is low grade, no one's wanted to stop their isotretinoin because of it. Bony changes are typically seen in patients who are on longer-term isotretinoin. We follow our patients with lab tests because it can affect triglycerides, um, cholesterol, transaminases. Um, it can cause pseudotumor cerebri, especially with concurrent use of oral tetracycline, so it's really important to stop um, your oral antibiotics before starting your patient on isotretinoin. Um, and also there's other drug interactions. Um, isotretin is a pre-450 inducer and so it can interact with other medications, um, so you need to keep that in mind. But what we're going to focus on today is this controversy of inflammatory bowel disease. Is there an association between isotretinoin and inflammatory bowel disease? And what about depression and suicide? What's the data regarding that? And then teratogenicity is a well-established um, potential side effect of fetal exposure to isotretinoin. So 
we're going to touch on that and um, our best friend, iPledge. So hot off the presses two weeks ago, um, Roche um, Pharmaceuticals lost a lawsuit in New Jersey um, regarding the inflammatory bowel disease issue. Um, they were ordered to pay $18 million in damages to two people who blamed isotretinoin for causing their inflammatory bowel disease. Um, I think to date there have been 13 suits that have gone to trial and uh, Roche has lost nine of them, but a number of those have subsequently been overturned in appeal. So who knows how much Roche has actually paid out to, in these settlements and in, you know, other things that never went to trial. For those who like to follow celebrities, I actually didn't know who this guy was by name, but some of you might recognize him. I guess if you're a fan of Twin Peaks, that's where he made his name. Um, I recognize the picture on the bottom right from A Few Good Men. Um, James Marshall was an actor who blames isotretinoin for ruining his acting career um, because it caused, according to him, his inflammatory bowel disease. Um, and he sued Roche in 2010 for $11 million. Had some pretty famous people um, testify on his behalf, Martin Sheen, um, director Rob Reiner. Um, he actually lost. Um, but despite those, um, that loss, don't worry, if any of your patients want to sue Roche, basically if you Google isotretinoin, half of the things that pop up, more than half, the vast majority of what pops up initially are links to lawyers' websites that say, you know, we will help you fight your lawsuit. Um, some of them are really focused on this inflammatory bowel disease issue. Some will tackle any issue related to uh, isotretinoin. The Accutane team is there, um, you know, at the ready for you. So let's have a little refresher about inflammatory bowel disease. I am not a gastroenterologist. I'm certainly not an expert in inflammatory bowel disease. But there are two major subtypes of inflammatory bowel disease, Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis. Crohn's disease can involve anywhere from the mouth to the anus, um, and it's often not continuous. You have skip lesions, um, whereas ulcerative colitis just involves the colon. Um, the inflammation in Crohn's disease is full thickness, um, whereas in ulcerative colitis, it's more superficial. Both have an increased risk of developing colon cancer. You can cure ulcerative colitis with a colectomy. You can treat Crohn's disease, but you cannot cure it. And the symptoms of Crohn's disease can be vague, um, especially with mild disease. Um, some patients, um, you know, just feel fatigue and some crampy abdominal pain. Most, but not all, have diarrhea. And it's not usually, frankly, bl bloody diarrhea. Um, they may have weight loss. Um, there are periods of uh, remission. And it's not uncommon for patients to actually have prolonged remission. And so there can be a long lag time between initial symptoms and actual diagnosis, which makes it really hard to figure out you know, what could be triggering this entity. Similarly, ulcerative colitis can be vague, especially if mild. Um, you might just have diarrhea and crampy abdominal pain. If it's more severe, the symptoms are more pronounced. Inflammatory bowel disease, this is a little image that shows you know, where it's most common. It's most common in northern latitudes and in developed countries. Um, and you know, we're still trying to figure out why that is. What are the risk factors? Um, and so one of the questions is, is isotretinoin a cause of inflammatory bowel disease? Um, the first reports suggesting an association date back to the mid-1980s. Um, but more recently, there have been four major publications that tend to be cited, um, and we're going to go through all four of these. Um, two of them suggested that there you know, may be an association, and two didn't find enough evidence to really suggest an association. So the first one that came out was just a review of um, reports to MedWatch. MedWatch is an FDA database where healthcare providers or consumers can report a potential adverse drug reaction. 
Um, and these authors um, looked at the cases that had been reported to MedWatch from 97 to 2002. And they found 85 cases, and they used a scoring system to rate the probability of um, a true association as highly probable, possible, um, or probable or doubtful. And this is a representation of their data. Um, basically what they decided um, based on the scoring system was that almost uh, three quarters of the cases there seemed to be a highly probable or probable association. And a quarter of the cases um, it was a possible association. None of the cases were rated as doubtful, but if you look at the scoring system they used, it was basically completely impossible to rate as doubtful. So there's a lot of you know, inherent flaws in this study, um, but it was the first sort of bigger study to look at this. Then in 2009, Crockett et al. Um, basically did a, a critical review of the literature that was published in the American Journal of Gastroenterology. Um, they found um, 15 cases in the literature reported up to 2008. And they used the Hill criteria to assess um, the likelihood of causality um, to evaluate these reports. And what they concluded was there wasn't sufficient evidence to confirm or refute causality. Um, and so further studies are done. And actually, this group of authors is the author on the, the, the one of the bigger reports that we're going to talk about after this next one. Because the first real population-based larger case control study um, was published in 2009, also in the American Journal of Gastroenterology, and they used a health administration database from Manitoba, Canada, that includes over a million people. And what they did was they found IBD diagnoses um, from 95 to 2008. They restricted it to patients under age 40, um, and they randomly matched those sex, age, and geographically controlled um, matched. Um, and they looked at any isotretinoin exposure in the database, which dated back to 1984. And I'm going to show you their data, but basically from what they did, they concluded that, you, um, that IBD wasn't any more likely to be associated with isotretinoin than in the matched um, controls. And so this is a force plot for those who need a refresher on statistics, um, which I did. Um, odds ratio. Um, is used in large population studies um, to represent the odds of an event happening in one group versus another. So an odds ratio greater than one um, is considered to be a positive association. It's more likely to have, a, the event is more likely to occur in one group than the other. And when the 95% confidence interval doesn't span across one, that's when it's considered to be statistically significant. So the lines represent the 95% um, confidence interval. So you can see when they looked at IBD in general, when they looked at Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis specifically, none of their odds ratios were statistically significant. And that's hence their conclusion that there wasn't evidence for an association between isotretinoin and inflammatory bowel disease. So just a year later, again, in the American Journal of, of Gastroenterology, um, by that group, um, Crockett et al., um, another case control study was done, um, this using an even larger database. They actually used a U.S. insurance claims database that includes 55 million people from 33 states, so maybe some of us in here are actually in that database. Again, they looked at IBD diagnoses. They didn't restrict age, um, and they matched it to controls. Um, they just used three or less controls. And they restricted their exposure to isotretinoin to just one year um, before the diagnosis of inflammatory bowel disease um, and one year prior to enrollment for those people in the control. And I'll show you the data um, that they had, which is basically they found a 
statistically significant odds ratio for ulcerative colitis, not for Crohn's disease and not for IBD in general. Um, their odds ratio was over four, um, which um, is actually a fairly strong association. And they did some sub-analyses that we're going to talk about. One of them is represented here. They actually broke it down into length of treatment. So if patients were treated for less than 60 days, then that odds ratio for ulcerative colitis was no longer statistically significant. If they looked at greater than 60 days, um, it actually became an even stronger association. And so you've got two studies, similar population-based controlled studies. Um, and why are the results different? You know, it's, it, there are obviously some differences in the studies. There was a really nice um, critical appraisal of this published in Archives of Dermatology um, in the evidence-based medicine section where they analyzed the two studies and compared them um, and get into some of the statistical nitty-gritty. Um, one of the things they pointed out is that the first study, Bernstein et al., by looking at any exposure to isotretinoin over, you know, a, long period of time, they may have biased themselves towards the null hypothesis. Um, the Crockett et al. study had some strengths. Um, as I said, it looked at exposure only for 12 months before diagnosis of inflammatory bowel disease, but they also did some sub-analyses that suggested um, that there may indeed be causality. I showed you the um, force plot for increased odds ratio with longer duration of treatment. They also found a higher um, odds ratio when they looked at higher dose of treatment and when the dose was escalated during treatment. So is this theoretically possible? Can isotretinoin cause inflammatory bowel disease? The truth is we don't know because we actually don't really know how isotretinoin works and we don't really understand the pathogenesis of inflammatory bowel disease. But people have put out hypotheses and because they're just theoretical, I didn't really want to get into them. There's a, a nice publication in 2009 where they um, looked at biopsies um, of patients while taking isotretinoin. They did a gene array analysis and they found alterations in genes encoding for proteins that affect immune function as well as uh, epithelial barrier function. So there are some theoretical mechanisms for a, a way that isotretinoin could cause inflammatory bowel disease, but we don't really know um, if it's a real association yet and how that could actually work in reality. And we have to keep in mind that there are some possible confounders. Even in these you know, studies that were done, they couldn't really tease apart all of the things. And one of the things that has been brought up in some of the commentaries about these two studies in particular raises this question of, is there an association between acne, particularly severe acne, and inflammatory bowel disease? The Crocodile Doll study tried to look at that, and when they did a, a sub-analysis, they didn't find an independent association between acne and inflammatory bowel disease, but they couldn't break it down into severe acne because they just used ICD-9 codes, and there's no separate code for more severe acne. Um, and the other study didn't look at this at all. And then neither study looked at the question of an association between antibiotic use and inflammatory bowel disease. This has been something that's been raised in the inflammatory bowel disease literature, um, regardless of whether or not they had acne. Um, and there's been one recent study, in, again, in the American Journal of Gastroenterology, where they specifically looked at um, oral tetracycline treatment for acne in patients and whether that was associated with the risk of inflammatory bowel disease. This was a retrospective cohort study using a large database from the UK. They found almost 100,000 patients who had been treated with acne, and they looked specifically at patients who had been given oral tetracyclines for at least a month. And essentially what their data showed was that doxycycline seemed to be associated with an increased risk of 
inflammatory bowel disease, and particularly Crohn's disease, although it um, wasn't statistically significant for ulcerative colitis alone. So there's a definite possible confounder there. So what do we make of all of this data? Basically, the punchline is that we don't know yet, but that isotretinoin may be associated with an increased risk of inflammatory bowel disease. And it seems like the data points more towards this potential association with ulcerative colitis and not so much for Crohn's disease. One of the things that um, the Popescu et al. Uh, article on ARC-DERM did was they actually calculated the absolute risk um, and you know, the number basically needed to treat to cause harm. And according to the numbers, they used the Crockett et al. study to do this calculation. And according to the numbers from that study, you would need to treat almost 3,000 patients with isotretinoin to observe one excess case of ulcerative colitis. So your risk for any individual patient you're counseling is actually quite low. Of course, if you think about the millions of people that are treated with isotretinoin, that's potentially a, a significant number of cases of uh, ulcerative colitis that could potentially be attributed to isotretinoin. But the absolute risk for any one patient is very low. Um, so what do we do with all of this data or you know, confusing data? I think you have to make sure that you're including a review of systems in, um, in, in your review system, things about GI complaints. Um, at Children's, what we do is we actually have our patients fill out a survey before they start isotretinoin, and every visit they come in, and that makes make sure that none of us forget something on the review systems, and I have them sign it. Um, and it talks about GI complaints, and you ask about it. I think before starting treatment, you really need to be sure that you've asked those questions and that you've asked about a family history of inflammatory bowel disease. Um, inflammatory bowel disease does seem to have some potential genetic component, especially Crohn's disease. So if there's a family history, that might raise a little bit of concern. If there's anything concerning on review of systems or a very strong family history, you may want to consult with the gastroenterologist before starting isotretinoin. And you need to counsel your patients about this risk and I think document it in the chart. So. We're going to switch gears a little bit um, and talk about the depression and suicide issues. Um, Accutane came on the national news radar screen in 2000 when a U.S. representative to Congress' son um, shot himself while taking Accutane. And um, the congressman blames Accutane for his son's death and actually tried to file suit, which they subsequently lost. Um, came on national headlines again when in 2002 a teenager um, stole a Cessna plane um, uh, and flew it into a Bank of America tower in Tampa um, while taking um, isotretinoin. And again, his mother um, filed suit for $70 million against Roche, um, blaming him for her son's behavior. Um, and this lawsuit was subsequently dropped. Um, but have no fear, if your patients want to find a lawyer to help them with their you know, complaints about suicide and depression issues, it does not take much to find a lawyer who's willing to help you battle this or any other issue related to isotretinoin. And in fact, the bottom guy, you can call him 24 hours a day, um, toll free, to get a free consultation uh, if you have a case or not. So and one of the things I think the lawyers like to quote a statistic um, is that in 2000, the FDA ranked isotretinoin in the top 10 drugs for the number of reports of a, a possible association with depression and suicide attempt. And it's actually the only non-psychiatric uh, drug that ranked in the top 10 for suicide attempts. So I'm sure that statistic has been quoted over and over again in court. 
is there a possible biologic mechanism here? Um, so this has been looked at. Um, the first article that I've referenced here is actually was a nice review of the literature prior to 2009, and they looked at um, studies in humans as well as studies that have been done in mice um, uh, to see, you know, is there a plausible um, biologic mechanism? And there's theories, and they've done some, you know, mice or rat studies that have shown potential alterations in the neurotransmitter systems like dopamine or serotonin. Um, they've also been a suggestion that there might be a decrease in adult neurogenesis on uh, isotretinoin. So those are theoretical biologic mechanisms how um, isotretinoin could affect um, mental health. This was a recent publication in the British uh, Medical Journal in 2010, which was a cohort study done in Sweden. Um, in Sweden, isotretinoin is um, not registered, and in order to get the medication, you have to apply for compassionate use through a program where they keep a registry of all the patients. And it's a socialized healthcare system. Every patient gets um, a unique um, personal identification number. And so what they could do is they could use that registration for isotretinoin um, to uh, link it to inpatient admissions for suicide attempts. And so they found you know, over 5,000 patients that had been prescribed isotretinoin in the 1980s, and 128 of those had been admitted for um, suicide attempts. And they compared suicide rates with the general population for three years before, um, during treatment, and up to 15 years after treatment with isotretinoin. And what they found was basically an increased risk of suicide attempt for up to six months after treatment. But they also found a rising risk of suicide attempt prior to starting treatment. And one of the things that they noted is that patients who had a history of a suicide attempt before starting isotretinoin actually made fewer attempts than those whose first treatment um, was on treatment, uh, or sorry, first attempt was on treatment. So again, this study was analyzed in the literature, praised in commentaries that are interesting to read. Um, things that were brought up was a selection biased and confounding by indication. Um, they did a comparison with the general population, and people argue, well, you're not comparing patients with severe acne, and can that alone be associated with increased risk of suicide attempt? We're going to talk about that a little bit more. Also, information bias. Patients on isotretinoin are seeing doctors more frequently. Um, although they only looked at inpatient admissions for suicide attempt, could it be that patients seeing doctors more frequently are more likely to report uh, an attempted suicide and then be subsequently hospitalized for that? Um, they also questioned the external validity. The patient's um, average age was 22 years in men and 27 years in women, which um, the authors who, of these commentaries thought that was, you know, older than average patients treated with isotretinoin, and does that argue that these patients had more severe acne or potentially more psychological consequences from their acne prompting them to want to be more aggressive about treatment? And there were two editorials basically concluded that what the study really did was highlighted the association between severe acne and suicide attempts and not so much answer the question about whether isotretinoin could be to, to blame for the increase in suicide attempts. And another study looked at this issue. It was a questionnaire-based study done in Norway where they did a questionnaire to almost 4,000 kids, um, or I should say kids, people aged 18 and 19. And they asked, the, the questionnaire asked people to rate their own degree of acne. And so 14% of the population that they uh, questioned said that they felt they had substantial acne. 
and then they asked a bunch of mental health questions, and they found a significant association between suicidal ideation, mental health problems in general, and what they called social impairment, which was low attachment to friends, not thriving at school, never having had a romantic relationship, and never having had sexual intercourse. So this is something that's been on the radar screen for a long time, but a lot of people do think that acne of itself is associated with anxiety, depression, and suicidal ideation. And so again, we need to be asking these questions for all of our patients with acne. Um, you need to ask questions about depression symptoms and suicidal ideation. Um, you know, there is a possible link between isotretinoin and um, psychological issues. Um, it's debated still, it's, there's not clear, but there's still this question of it. And I pledge, which we're gonna talk about next, even though the reported goal of iPledge is to decrease fetal exposure um, to isotretinoin. You guys probably all read the consent form that talks a lot about depression symptoms and issues. So it's, it's in the consent form that people sign and it's something you need to be counseling your patients about. But remember, we may be needing to treat both acne um, and depression. And the good news is there are a lot of great antidepressant medications that don't interact with isotretinoin. And your patient can certainly be on antidepressant medications and on isotretinoin. I've had a number of patients with a significant history of um, mental health issues that I have treated with isotretinoin. I do that after appropriately counseling the patient and their families, um, often touching base with their mental health providers and making sure they're on board with this, that they're gonna be followed closely while they're on it. Um, it's something you know you ask about at every visit. I give that survey, but one of the things I still ask about is how are you feeling, how's your mood? I look at the parents and I say, have you noticed any changes in their mood or behavior, anything you're worried about? Um, so the punchline is that a history of depression or even history of a suicide attempt is not an absolute contraindication to starting isotretinoin. You just have to do it with appropriate counseling and appropriate monitoring and potentially appropriate treatment um, in place. So finally, our best friend, iPledge. We all love it. Um, iPledge, as I said, the goal of it is supposed to be to decrease fetal exposure to isotretinoin. Um, the teratogenicity of um, isotretinoin has uh, long been well established. Um, the black box warning on isotretinoin is specifically about teratogenicity. It's not about inflammatory bowel disease. It's not about suicide and depression. There are the you know, warning pamphlets, you know, sort of the list of side effects. There are warnings about it, but the black box warning is specifically about the teratogenicity. Um, and studies have estimated that um, you know, over a quarter of uh, fetal exposures to isotretinoin will result in a various different birth defects. Um, and the critical time of exposure is pretty early in pregnancy, and so that's the hard part. Um, and so there have been different systems set up in place to try to prevent fetal exposure to isotretinoin. When uh, Roche initially came out with Accutane, they just you know, gave a pamphlet saying, you know, remember, this is a teratogen. And then they did a voluntary pregnancy prevention program starting in 1988. That was switched over to what was called the SMART program, an FDA-mandated um, program in 2002. And then in March of 2006, we all got introduced to iPledge, um, and that is what exists today. Um, and I think everyone here presumably is registered with iPledge and familiar with its requirements, so I'm not gonna go into that in great detail. But what has been the impact of iPledge over the past, what was it? six years that it's been around. Um, 
there was a nice study done um, by a group um, at Kaiser in California where they looked um, retrospectively at the patients, female patients of childbearing age. And what they looked at was um, isotretinoin treatment for the last two years of uh, the SMART program and compared it with the first two years of the iPledge program. And what they found um, was actually a significant reduction in the number of actual treatment courses, um, but they didn't find a significant reduction in fetal exposure during iPledge. Um, you can see there was a total of 29 fetal exposures. Some of those pregnancies were terminated. Nine patients chose to maintain their pregnancy, um, eight of which resulted in completely healthy infants. Um, one patient or one infant had um, polydactyly, a supernumerary digit. Um, and so it's interesting. It basically correlates with what the FDA um, data has shown, which is that there hasn't really been a decrease in fetal exposure to isotretinoin um, since iPledge was initiated. And one of the big impacts of iPledge seems to have been a reduction in the number of prescriptions written per year. Um, when they first introduced SMART, there was a 23% reduction in, um, in prescriptions for isotretinoin. Um, and then in the first year of iPledge, compared to the first year of SMART, there was a 39% reduction in the number of prescriptions. Um, and this is actually falling disproportionately on women. Um, so less women are getting prescriptions, even more so than before. And so, you know, I think we have to question what is the effectiveness of iPledge if its goal is to decrease fetal exposure and it doesn't seem to be doing that um, versus the burden and the cost. I think we all know that it's quite a burden to you know, fill out the iPledge um, paperwork um, and it's a cost. I mean, our, our, it's being paid for by the federal government, but it's, you know, it's definitely a cost. And one begs the question, if it's there to you know, limit fetal exposure to um, isotretinoin, why are men required to register an iPledge and why are women not of childbearing age supposed to uh, register? Um, and you know, it's, it's a nice database, it gives you nice information, but is that really worth you know, the cost and the burden on us? Um, so punchline is isotretinoin is a great drug. You're going to hear more about treatment of acne in general later. I didn't really touch upon it, but isotretinoin is actually used off-label for a number of other dermatologic conditions. And I think a lot of us became scared in 2009 when they, you know, Roche pulled Accutane off the market that isotretinoin might disappear altogether. And I think people still worry about that as these $18 million lawsuits come out. You know, are we going to lose isotretinoin as a drug? Um, and I think that would be an absolute shame. Um, you know, it's still unclear what is the risk of inflammatory bowel disease in patients taking isotretinoin. Um, there is a possible link with ulcerative colitis in particular, and so it's something you need to counsel your patients about, document, um, be aware of, make sure your patients are aware of that risk um, um, and follow up on it. And then this question of depression and suicide um, is still out there. And so again, you need to counsel, you need to document that you've counseled, and you need to talk about all of the potential risks of isotretinoin. And unfortunately, I pledge is what we have to deal with for now. And who knows if that will change? Who knows if something better will come in its place? But that's where we are right now. So questions? Oh, and just a special thanks to one of our residents who did a great talk on this topic. What is your recommendation for treating a patient who already has a diagnosis of inflammatory bowel disease with isotretinoin? So there have been reports of inflammatory bowel disease worsening on isotretinoin, so I think in that case you need to talk with their gastroenterologist 
and you know, see if, how they feel about it. I mean, a lot of the literature about this is in the gastroenterology um, literature, so hopefully they're well aware of this issue, but I would pick up the phone and actually call the gastroenterologist and say, hey, what do you think about this idea? What lab tests are you using and with what frequency? So I monitor, initially I get a, a CBC, BUN, creatinine, um, liver function tests, and I also get triglycerides, um, a full lipid panel. Um, and I monitor initially monthly um, uh, for all of my patients, um, and then I will monitor if I'm escalating the dose, but if they've been on a stable dose and their labs are stable, I won't continue to do that. And then of course, pregnancy test. So we have to do a pregnancy test monthly, monthly, and even one month after the course of treatment for women of childbearing age. You mentioned that Accutane is a, a cytochrome P450 inducer and that there are certain antidepressants you feel comfortable. Do you, do you prescribe them? Do you have the, no? No, I don't, I'm not comfortable prescribing any antidepressants. So if a patient needs to be on antidepressant medications, that's, I mean, some primary care providers out there are very comfortable and if they have a close relationship with their primary care provider who's comfortable prescribing antidepressants, mm -hmm. then that might be a reasonable way to go, but um, otherwise they should be under the care of a psychiatrist and, and a therapist. So for so. my own information, if they come to me on an antidepressant already, which ones are okay with Accutane and which ones are not? I think almost all of them are okay, but hopefully you have a handy dandy Hippocrates or something or some, you know, you can get on the internet these days and you can do drug okay. interaction checks. So, um, but I, I mean, I've had a number of, you know, the SSRIs, they're all okay, et cetera. What are your thoughts of low dose maintenance dose of isotretinoin in males? And do you think it's still necessary to follow labs even on such low doses? So, no, if a patient's on a low dose and their labs have been stable, um, I don't know that they need um, to keep checking labs. I think it's hard with the iPledge system, it's harder to do chronic low. Um, Low, uh, low dosing. I don't do it a ton. Um, I think maybe partly because I treat a primarily a pediatric population and I try to give them a course of it and get them off of it. Um, but you know, I certainly use low dose isotretinoin for other um, dermatologic conditions, like I might use it in my ichthyosis patients at a very low dose. Um, and again, I'll check labs initially, and once their labs are stable and they're on a stable dose, I don't keep checking labs. Do you have any knowledge if any of the studies that were trying to compare correlation between isotretinoin use and inflammatory bowel disease, if they screened any of these patients for genetic markers such as HLA-B27? No. They didn't have the ability because they're just the, the two big studies we talked about the population were simply using big databases. And so they didn't have, I think, that data or at least they didn't look into that data. So no. Thank you. I have two questions. One is um, how long does it take for you to see um, possible link to uh, IBD uh, with the acuting and um, like how many uh, months afterwards would you see the effect? So that's what's really unclear is that, you know, I showed you that the, the average time to diagnosis of onset of symptoms for Crohn's disease is over seven years. I didn't find any good data about, you know, specifically for ulcerative colitis, but it's, you know, there can be a long lag time between initial symptoms and diagnosis. And so I think that makes it really hard to A, you know, sort of know if there is a true association, um, and it also makes it hard to, you know, sort of say, oh, okay, if it's been a year, you're fine. Um, so, you know, I, I, it's, it's unclear. There's, there isn't good data about that. Um, also, uh, have you seen any uh, neutropenia related to Accutane? I have not. Um, I haven't been out in practice for all that long, but I have not seen that. 
Oh, um, neutropenia related to um, isotretinoin. Yes, I've had patients ask me about doing liver cleansing while they're on uh, witch hazel um, uh, liver cleanses. Do you have any recommendations on that? I have never heard of witch hazel liver cleansing, but I wouldn't think it's a good idea. <laughs> I would discourage it. That's what I told them. Okay. What's your comfort level with repeat courses of Accutane, um, assuming they've been full courses with initial response followed by relapse? So 20 to 30 patients, uh, 20 to 30 percent of patients who take isotretinone um, ultimately take a second course. So I think that is something, and I and I something I counsel my patients about that it's a quote cure for you know many but not all patients, and it may be that they need you know a little bit of topical treatment or something down the road, um, and it may well be that they'll take a second course of isotretinoin down the road. Um, I, you know, again, I'm treating just a pediatric population, so that doesn't come up all that commonly. You know, I, I wouldn't do it back to back, um, but I, you know, we certainly would do a second course of isotretinoin if it was indicated. And, and would you ever consider a third course? Potentially. Okay. I, I, they'd probably be out of my care by that point, but, but no, I would if they needed it. Just a follow-up to that. If you do take a holiday, if, if they complete a full course and they don't respond, you know, as well as you'd hoped. Do you take a holiday? And if so, how long do you take? Well, if they haven't responded, then I don't think another course is necessarily appropriate. I think a second course is appropriate for people that have a good or pretty good response that then flare up again. I think if they're a non-responder, they're a non-responder, and um, that's very unfortunate because there's not, you know, not a great other alternative, and you can look into all the other things and go back to the drawing board, but um, that might be when you reach into your bag of, you know, PDT or, you know, peels or things that they can afford that, that they might not have done beforehand, but um, uh, if they're not responding at all, I wouldn't do another course, if you've done an appropriate course initially. And then holiday, you know, I don't think there's any clear data out there. You know, I, I would like to, you know, give my patients a break for at least six months is what I tell them, but, you know, if they're did really well on it, and then they're flaring up and they're getting horrible nodulocystic acne and scarring, I may not wait that six months. Any other questions? Great, well thank you guys.